Greetings, folk. My name is Nick Spool Engel, and today I'm going to read out of a book by Donald Nickel entitled Triumphs of the Spirit in Russia. This is one of a number of books that I've had the privilege of borrowing from my uh, spiritual father, Peter van Niekerk, and I'm grateful to him for having lent me many books over the years, which have had an amazing impact on my spiritual life, which of course, our spiritual life impacts all of our lives, because the center of our lives is our spirit and our heart. So I'm going to read um, the chapter, it's chapter one, entitled The Starrett's Saint Seraphim, and Saint Seraphim was born in 1758. Um, and let's read. The life of Saint Seraphim and the wondrous incidents in his life recorded by those who witnessed them together present the deepest challenge imaginable to our common sense view of the world. And though it is easy for us nowadays to assume that it is only one, that it is only we of the 20th century with our sophisticated minds who find it difficult to accept those incidents to be true. That is not the case. In St. Seraphim's own day, in educated circles and even within the church, a profound skepticism prevailed concerning the sort of amazing stories being retailed about Seraphim. To take but one instance... The Metropolitan of St. Petersburg, himself named Seraphim, who died in 1848, at 50 years old, managed to prevent the publication of the first life of Seraphim for some years on the grounds that the miraculous stories contained in it would be a snare and temptation to the faithful. Indeed, Seraphim himself anticipated how difficult it would be for people to accept the stories as true. And he explained the cause of that skepticism. There's nothing incomprehensible here. The failure to understand comes about because we have wandered far from the spacious vision of the early Christians. Under the pretext of education, we have reached such darkness of ignorance that now we find inconceivable what the ancients saw so clearly that even in ordinary conversation, the notion of God's appearance did not seem strange to them. Men saw God and the grace of His Holy Spirit, not in sleep or in a dream or in the excitement of a disordered imagination, but truly in the light of day. Yet it is quite understandable that people should doubt the witness of other people to extraordinary happenings, since with the passage of the years, we human beings can even come to doubt the reality of extraordinary events in which we ourselves have taken part. It's true. Take, for example... What Elie Wiesel, the famous Holocaust survivor, said one day to a friend. Wiesel had been complaining that people have forgotten about the Holocaust and are behaving as though it was not a reality. To which his friend responded, Elie, believe it happened. Wiesel was taken aback by his friend's question and then slowly replied, No. I who was there, I do not believe it happened. A similar doubt afflicted one of Seraphim's closest friends, Nicholas Motovilov, who had written accounts of Seraphim's deeds during the Staritz's lifetime. After Seraphim's death, Motoliv Motovilov wanted to deepen his knowledge of the saints' early years and so journeyed to Seraphim's native city of Kursk in order to do so. He tells us that as he was sitting in the carriage on the way back from Kursk, 
He was thinking about events in the life of Seraphim when, when he suddenly felt that such things could not have happened. It's interesting the word felt there, that he suddenly felt that such things could not have happened. So sometimes our emotions can actually come in and influence us, as we know. But then he remembered that he had, of course, written them down soon after he had witnessed them. So he was actually an actual witness. So when he got back and checked his notes, he confirmed that the events had occurred not in sleep or in a dream or in the excitement of a disordered imagination, but truly in the light of day. The fact is that many people can testify to the way in which the veil between this world and an other world is very thin in certain places or in the presence of certain people. Often the places are those where, in the poet's words, prayer has been valid. Such as the island of Iona or Iona, permeated by the spirit of St. Column seal or the cell of the 14th century English mystic Dame Julian of Norwich. Concerning the latter, we have a testimony from our own day to an incident that matches many of the stories told of Seraphim. This happened in the early summer of 1974 when there came to Julian's cell a blind man assisted by his companion. His blindness was due to his cruel treatment at the hands of Japanese soldiers in a prison camp during the Second World War. As he and his companion knelt silently in the cell, Julian herself appeared, bringing with her the Japanese soldier responsible for the blind man's suffering. The dead man had come to seek forgiveness of his wartime victim who had himself been unable to overcome the bitterness felt against his captor. What then took place none can tell, only that the blind man was heard to speak to his visitor in Japanese. Then, released from his resentment, in the reconciliation which followed, he lapsed into an ecstasy of joy. The two next made their way to the All Hallows convent next door, where they were given tea by one of the sisters. In her presence, during the tea, the vision was repeated, and the blind man poured out his heart in great animation once more in Japanese. The vision was for him only and not for his companions, who saw nothing. Though in any case the fact of his blindness indicates that we are not speaking of the ordinary channels of seeing. Understanding now the reason for his journey and knowing that reconciliation had been effected, the blind man left in great happiness. Nor is Seraphim's gift of prosolivost without parallel in our own day. I myself, for example, remember vividly a certain brother Bill coming to our apartment, his eyes still open with wonder. Bill was a seeker who had traveled the world and had met many gurus from various traditions, but had lately been spending some months in a desert monastery. One day he managed to arrange a visit to an aged monk named Seraphim. Now in his 80s, Seraphim had spent the previous 60 years or more in the very same remote monastery, which he had never left during all that time. He had not learned, and he had scarcely and he scarcely knew anything about the modern world. But, said Brother Bill to me, his eyes m- wired with astonishment 
He opened me up and read me like a book. He knows me far better than I know myself. Yet, that was the first time Bill had spoken with Seraphim. Truly, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies. And whatever may have been the limitations in the outlook of the citizens of Seraphim's native Kursk, they did at least accept the truth of those words by Shakespeare. As the many churches within its boundaries testified at that time in 1758, that a third child was born to the Mashnins. The father was named Isidore and the mother Agatha. The child, later to be called Seraphim, was baptized Prokor, the name of a disciple of St. John the Evangelist, situated at the confluence of the rivers Kur and Tuskara, the city in which Prokhor spent his youth was one of Russia's outposts, which over the years had withstood attacks from the Crimean Tatars on one side and from Polish forces on the other. Consequently, the 8,000 souls who made up the population of the city in 1758 were the descendants of soldiers, Cossacks, gunners, coachmen, and clergy. But by this period they had achieved fame throughout Russia for their skill as merchants and traders in St. Petersburg. Nizhny Novgorod, Moscow, Kiev, and distant Siberia. Moreover, Kursk citizens took a leading part in projects to establish Russian settlements in Alaska and Northern California. Isidore Mashnin was himself a brick maker and builder who came to prominence in Kursk as a result of the fire which in 1751 destroyed one of the old wooden churches. Of the city, the church dedicated to Saint Sergius. The following year, the city authorities decided to build a much more imposing church dedicated again to Saint Sergius with the Kazan icon of the Mother of God and subsequently known as the Kazan Cathedral. I just want to make a comment here the environment. Um, it's obviously Catholic, so Mother of God, uh, referring to Mary. Um, so, so let's just pray um, and ask the Lord for wisdom. You know, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you give us wisdom as we read here to just discern which aspects of this story to, to keep and which to throw out. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your truth. It's your truth that sets free, and thank you, Lord, that... There were wonderful things that did happen through this story. And we just ask you for your wisdom, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're the spirit of truth and that you lead us into all truth as we read here in the name of Jesus. Okay, let's read on. The erection of this cathedral based upon a plan designed by the famous architect Bartholomew Rastrelli was entrusted to Isidore Mashnin in 1752 and was to be the overriding concern for the Mashnin family until it was consecrated in 1778. Sadly, Isidore himself died in 1760, but his wife, Agatha, a splendid woman, revered throughout Kursk for her warm heart, her care for the poor, and her generosity to orphan girls needing a dowry, took upon herself the task of overseeing the completion of the cathedral. It was while his mother was busy superintending the work on the bell tower one day with the seven-year-old Prokhor alongside her that 
the first dramatic occurrence recorded about him took place. He fell from the height of the tower, and yet miraculously in the eyes of the witnesses he suffered no harm. It was enough to lead the local Eurodivi, fool for Christ, to remark that it showed Prokhor to be one of God's elect. The memory of Eurodivi seems to have remained with Prokhor all his life and to have influenced him deeply. His miraculous preservation at his fall from the tower was the first of many occasions, according to Seraphim, that he was saved by the intervention of the mother of God. Okay, that's interesting that he himself believes it was the mother of God's intervention. I would say it was God or it was the Holy Spirit. She was to intervene again two years later on the 10th Friday before Easter, 1767, when Prokhor had been confined in his bed for some time due to a mysterious sickness which the doctors seemed unable to cure. Prokhor had already told his mother that the mother of God had appeared to him and had assured him that he would be healed. Then on the Friday in question, a religious procession bearing the icon of the mother of God known as the sign was processing along the road close to the Mashnin's house when a heavy shower fell, shower of rain fell and the procession sought shelter in the Mashnin's courtyard. Agatha took advantage of this to carry Prokhor from his bed and present him before the icon. Within a few days, Prokhor was completely well again. With such a family background, it is not surprising that young Prokhor soon became the leader of a small group of young men of the city who came together regularly in order to study the scriptures and the lives of the saints and who were themselves moved to consider becoming monks. In order to discern their vocation, five of them, Prokhor among them, set out one day to walk the 300 miles to Kiev and there seek advice from a holy monk named Dorothy. The upshot was that all of them eventually did become monks. Three of them, including Prokhor, followed Dorothy's advice to go to the monastery of Sarov. When considering the significance of the choice of Sarov, we need to bear in mind that the harsh attacks to which the Russian church had been subjected throughout the 18th century. The state had virtually taken over the church and had wreaked havoc, especially on monastic life, impoverishing the monasteries, arresting and torturing abbots and rendering orderly monasticism almost impossible in the Russian land. But when the persecution eased, the current of genuine monasticism began to flow once more in certain establishments, inspired in many cases by the revival of a mysticism derived from the Desert Fathers. One such monastery was established at a place remote from prying government officials in the great lumber forest of Sarov, on a hill below which the rivers Sarov and Satis meet. A place some 40 miles north of Nizhny Novgorod, but at the northern edge of the province of Tambov. For centuries a stronghold of the Tatar invaders. In the early 18th century, the site had attracted a number of hermits. Eventually, a monastery grew up there which became notable for a form of communal life more closely regulated than was usual in Russia. A regularity in any case necessitated by the need to boost the monastery's income by felling the surrounding timber and floating it down the river. When Prokhor went to Sarov, it was not in the company of the other two young hopefuls who had earlier accompanied him to Kiev, 
Instead, he waited until the 22nd of October, 1778, for on that day the Kazan Cathedral was consecrated. Thereby was completed the life's work of the Mashinin family, and in particular of his mother. It was she who now placed around Proko's neck a copper cross, which he was henceforth to wear every day of his life. At his death it was laid upon his breast, and when his relics, once stolen by the Bolsheviks in 1927, were discovered in 1990, the cross served as a guarantee of their authenticity. The next section is entitled 1778-93, so that's a 15-year period towards the priesthood. It is not difficult for us to picture the young man who arrived at Sarov on the eve of the feast of the entry into the temple of the Most Holy Mother of God on the 20th of November, 1778. So he's now 20 years old. He was 5 feet 10 inches tall, broad-shouldered, strongly built, his hair thick and light brown, as were his bushy eyebrows. Though both hair and eyebrows were to turn white in later life, his nose was finely shaped, and people remarked how deep was his voice when he spoke. But what, above all, caught an observer's attention were his strikingly light blue eyes. No less clear is the personality which shines out of the evidence we have for the following 15 years as he passed through, through the stages of the monastic novitiate and on to the diaconate and in September 1793 the priesthood. To begin with, he was clearly an excellent worker, as befitted a machinin, and could turn his hand to anything, serving not only as a sacristan, watchman and baker, but especially as a carpenter. In this latter capacity he was to make an altar table from Cyprus for the chapel allocated to the sick and senile members of the community. And already we hear from him a note which was to characterize his actions throughout the whole of his life. The note of cheerfulness born of courage. Whenever the other novices, for instance, fell into grumbling and dejection as they were working, he would always try to cheer them up by whistling or singing something to lift their spirits. There's nothing to so there's nothing so blocks the spirit, he said time and again, as gloom and despondency and downheartedness. And on a latter occasion, or later occasion, when he was a hermit, and he came upon two monks, exchanging gloomy words, he stamped his foot <laughs> and exclaimed, There is no place here for depression. For Christ has subdued all things. He has raised up Adam. He has set Eve free and slain death. I'm thinking of a line of the Stuart Townsend song, which he wrote with that other guy, Getty or something. And that line, the song, The Power of the Cross, the one line goes, Death is crushed to death. What a powerful line. And of course, Jesus, through his death, defeated death itself, as we know. The source of such courage and cheerfulness undoubtedly was the rigorous manner in which he was faithful in his observance of the monastic rule. Not only was he among the first into choir, but he would also stand alone before the icons, both in the church and in his cell. For many, many hours in silent prayer, indeed his rigorous observance may well have been responsible for the illness which affected him as it did so many Russian monks. 
through standing for so many hours at the liturgy. The illness known as dropsy. For three years, Prokhor was ill, much to the distress of the monastery's abbot. Prokhomius himself, a native of Kursk, and a man filled with affection for his attractive novice. The young man had lain on his pallet in his cell for 18 months, and Pacomius was on the point of doing what monks only did in desperate circumstances, that is, to send for a doctor. At this point, Prokhor said to Pacomius, I surrender myself, Reverend Father, to the true doctor of both soul and body, our Lord Jesus Christ and his most pure mother. So you've got the Catholic thing coming through again there. If you're, so let, but let's focus on, on what we can glean from this rather than getting um, caught up with, with the Mother Mary thing. If your love considers it appropriate... Provide me with spiritual medicine. Pacomius assented. The liturgy was celebrated for his healing. And Prokhor began to recover. Many, many years later, he revealed to a trusted friend what had happened. After receiving the Eucharist, he said, There appeared to me in ineffable light the Most Holy Mother of God with the Apostle John, the theologian, and Peter, pointing towards me, the sovereign lady, said, Here is one of us. She then placed her right hand on my forehead, and with her left hand she touched me with the scepter she was holding. In that place, on my right thigh, a hole appeared, out, and out of it the water flowed. That is how the Queen of Heaven healed lowly seraphim. In his desire to thank God for his healing, he asked and received permission to go on foot throughout the country in the company of his old novice master, Joseph, to beg alms for the monastery and in particular for the money to build a little chapel over the cell in which he had suffered so much and where he had received a heavenly visitation. The journey that the young monk and his elder undertook led them to his native city of Kursk, where he had the joy of finding his mother still among the living and his older brother Alexis, established as a family man, prosperous enough to make a substantial donation for the chapel at Sarov. We shall never understand the Russia of those days and the young monk from Sarov especially, unless by way of our imagination we envisage those pilgrims tramping day after day across the Russian land and meeting people of all ranks as they did so. So there's a bit of a Socratic thing happening, of course. Socrates was able to transcend class and mix with all different people. Because it was precisely that experience that enabled a monk to embrace in his prayers and his counsel the needs and sufferings of his fellows. As Prokhor was to say years later when someone quoted the judgment that a hermit by withdrawing from society or even from the society of monks, is behaving like a Pharisee. It is not our business to judge others. He went on to explain that withdrawal from society enables a person to take upon himself the task of resisting the forces of evil, yet even the monk in his monastery is confronting evil forces in the form merely of doves, whereas... The hermit faces them in the shape of lions and leopards. By the time of the next journey, Prokhor is recorded to have made he and been received 
fully into the monastic order and had been ordained deacon, receiving in the process a new name. His name, incidentally, means flame. By which he was not to be known in the future. The name Seraphim, which is pronounced Serakvim in the Kursk dialogue, dialect. In Hebrew, Seraphim means flaming ones, a most appropriate description for someone who was subsequently to radiate so much warmth and light. It was in the early June of 1789 that Abbot Pacomius took Seraphim with him to officiate at the burial of a rich benefactor of their monastery. On their return journey, they stopped at a place which was to play a central part in the life and destiny of Seraphim, the village of Divyevo, situated some eight miles from the monastery of Sarov. Divyevo, in the mid-18th century, seems to have been a turbulent place. The countryside was scarred by early industrialization since settlements of miners had been introduced in order to extract iron. The miners were as rough as their work and their wives often had to go laboring in the fields of the local peasants to the neglect of their children. Into this unpromising situation had come the widow of a colonel, a wealthy landowner in her own right, who had decided on becoming a widow to devote her life to serving God and her neighbors. Agatha Semenova, Melgunova, as she was called, was advised by one of the elders at Kiev to seek direction at the monastery of Serov. Consequently, she was on her way there one day when she stopped to rest at the village of Devievo. Sitting down near the old village church, she fell into a light sleep in which the Mother of God appeared and told her that this was the place where she was to settle and begin her monastic life. When she later told her story to the elders Ephraim and Pocomius at Sarov, they confirmed her in her intention. So she returned home, sold all her properties and began to live a monastic form of life under the name of Alexandra. Under the influence of this highly intelligent and well-educated woman, the situation in Divievo and the surrounding district began to be transformed. To begin with, she arranged for a new church to be built in the village, a stone one to replace the ancient rickety wooden one. In the church she placed a copy of the famous miracle-working Kazan icon of the Virgin, which she herself went to obtain. Then she established herself and her daughter in a building adjacent to the church, which soon became a focus for helping the needy of every sort in the neighborhood. A place where even the local landowners and clergy would come in search of counsel. Then slowly peasant girls gathered around her. Cells were added to Alexandra's own cell and a little monastic community formed. Not yet a canonically recognized community, let it be said, but one which enjoyed the approval, friendship and guidance of the Sarov elders. 
There were many mutual exchanges of gifts between the monastery at Sarov and Mother Alexandra's sisters, who made clothing for the monks and did their mending for them. Sadly, however, when in early June 79, Abbot Pacomius and the deacon Seraphim called in upon the little community of sisters at Divievo, they found Mother Alexandra lying in the bed near to death's door. But they were in time to anoint her with the unction for the dying and to hear her last wishes. These were that they would take charge of three small bags containing some 40,000 rubles. That's Russian money. All that remained of her previous fortune and use the money for the sustenance of her little community of orphans as she described the simple unlettered sisters to whom she had been a mother. Dear mother, replied Abbot Pacomius, I ask nothing better than to do your will, but I am old and God alone knows how long I may still live. But Deacon Seraphim, here is young and will live long en- but Deacon Seraphim here is young and will live long enough to see your community grow and prosper. That is how Seraphim came to receive the charge that was eventually to prove the crown of his vocation. And though he immediately and ever afterwards remained conscious of his charge, Nevertheless, it was nearly 30 years before he was called upon to live the implications of it to the full. Two days after his encounter in Divievo, Abbot Pacomius, Isaiah and Seraphim were called back there on 13th of June to celebrate a requiem mass for Mother Alexandra, who now lay in her coffin surrounded by her orphans. Surprisingly, Seraphim did not stay on after the funeral for the customary meal with the sisters. Instead, despite a violent rainstorm which continued for several hours, he made his way along the eight miles to Serov on foot and alone. The likely explanation is that the young man was conscious of the traditional warning to monks regarding women. Flee from those painted crows as from the fire. Often they transform a warrior of the king into a slave of Satan. The virtuous ones are as much to be avoided as the others. The heart of a monk is always weakened through commune with the feminine sex. How utterly an older seraphim was to gainsay such fears. The next section is entitled 1793 to 1822, the vocation ripens. So that's 29 years span. For the next few years, Seraphim seems to have followed smoothly the path laid out for the monk to progress in the spiritual life along the monastic highway. We know, for instance, that he journeyed to Tambov, the seat of the bishop of the diocese. For there, on 2nd of September 19, sorry, 1793, he was ordained a priest and accorded the rank of hero monk, a priest monk. So he's 35 years old now. And there were already indications that the community of Sarov monks was beginning to see him as a person of unusual spiritual stature, like his older friends, Pacomius, Joseph, and Isaiah, something of a Staritz, in fact. Staritz is in um, italics. But he himself was yearning to take a further more dangerous step along the path of the Spirit. He wanted to go alone into the forest as a hermit to outface the forces of evil in single combat, relying not on any 
earthly comradeship or human ingenuity, but solely on the Spirit of God infusing his own heart. An appropriate moment to do so arrived in 1794 when his friend and mentor, Abbot Pacomius, died on 6th of September and was succeeded as abbot by Isaiah. It says much about the straightened situation of the church in Russia that Seraphim had to receive official permission to become a hermit, as well as having to renew the permit each year. On the grounds that hermitages, like monasteries, were under government surveillance. The formal authorization ran, The bearer of this license, the priest-monk of the Sarov Desert, is retired to separate quarters within the desert by reason of his incapacity for communal life, his sickness and his zeal, and after prolonged probation in the community and is retired within the desert solely for the peace of his mind and God, and subject to the prescribed rule according to the statutes of the fathers, and let no one hinder him from dwelling there. The term desert was of course derived from the pattern of the desert fathers of Egypt, but in this case it referred to the great forest, which stretches some 30 miles from Sarov to Temniki. It was into that forest that Seraphim entered on the 21st of November 19, sorry, 1794, exactly 16 years to the day since he entered the monastery as a novice. He knew full well that he did not know entirely what he was letting himself in for, since he himself warned that there are two vocations that one should try to follow without a very special very distinct call from God. One is the life of a hermit, and the other is that of Eurodivi. For both of these vocations, he insisted, one needs an extremely strong mind and body, because otherwise the attempt will end in disaster. Like a man, St. Matthew twelve forty-three 43-5, who sweeps his house and clears it of an evil spirit that passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none, so he returns to the house. He came from bringing seven other spirits even more evil than itself. They settle him there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. The risky undertaking on which Seraphim was about to embark is known in the Russian tradition as Podvig. That is to say, the determination to surrender oneself utterly to God, not retaining any earthbound attachment, but to be set upon arriving at a condition of total surrender. No matter what terrors of mind and body one has to face and endure on the way. The place Seraphim chose as the arena for his battle with the forces of evil was a little hut situated on a wooded hillock overlooking the river Sarovka, some three and a half miles distant from the monastery buildings further away than the huts of other hermits who also belonged to Sarov. The hut contained an icon in one corner, a stove in another, and in the middle a stump of a tree to serve as a chair. That was all. And it was here that a podvig was accomplished as astounding as any in all the 2,000 years of Christian history. Though we obviously cannot know much about even the externals of Seraphim, Seraphim's Podvig, the essence of 
what took place is beyond doubt. It is that for a thousand days and a thousand nights, Seraphim stood in continuous prayer, doing so by day on a rock in the clearing around his hut, and by night standing on a rock which he had maneuvered into his hut. At night he slept no more than two or three hours, and he ate next to nothing. At one period living on a plant which the local peasants used to feed on in times of famine, named Snit, it seems to have been a kind of sorrel, and Seraphim used to gather it and dry it against the winter. Concerning the form of his prayer during this period, we cannot be confident of knowing much, only that the source of the Jesus prayer, which Dorothy of Kiev had urged him to practice some 30 years previously. Accordingly, we can be confident that after those 30 years of practice, the words Boze, Milostiv, Budu, Mne, Greshnomi, God be merciful to me, a sinner, or more usually Jesus be merciful to me, a sinner, and become had become second nature to his lips and then in his mind, until finally, by the grace of God, it had descended into his heart so that the prayer continued to flow through his whole being. No matter what he might otherwise be doing. Almost the, the only account Seraphim has ever prepared, was ever prepared to give concerning those days and nights ran. The hermit, tempted by the spirit of darkness, is like dead leaves chased by the wind. Like clouds driven by the storm, the demon of the desert blows down on the hermit about midday and sows restless worries in him, and disturbing desires as well. These temptations can only be overcome by prayer, and since we can hardly avoid imagining the scene of such a great podvig, we are right to pay heed to an inspired passage from the pen of a woman who during the 1930s herself knew suffering at a concentration camp in the presence, sorry, in the great forest of Temnigi, where she came to feel the presence of Seraphim. Entering deeper into the realm of silence, Seraphim completely stemmed the flow of words within him. Not only the spoken words, even the flow of words that well up in the mind. His prayer ceased to be a logical sequence of words. The name of Jesus, the essence of the constant prayer, ceased to be a word. It became the direction of his soul in its flight Godward. When it reached the limits of the notions of speech, he entered a realm more perfectly still than any other. In this realm, his mind was trained to hear the primordial word. When the ebb set in and human life was once more set out before his mind's eye as a concrete network, of ordinary facts. The fabric of particular human lives appeared before him with its particular design. The pattern that every one of these lives should follow was obvious to him. Men's mistakes, intentional and unintentional, in the present, past and future, stood out as clearly discernible blotches and tangles. They disfigured the particular pattern of divine purpose. After the ebb had set in the pattern of 
seraphim's own life now becomes perceptible to us. In a break with monastic tradition, he did not always wear the black cloak of the monk, but instead he usually wore a white smock favored by peasants. And for footwear, he adopted the peasants' lapti made of birch bark. He would rise soon after midnight from the sack of stones on which he slept, using a log for a pillow. He would immediately begin to pray the prayers in the monastic rule, attributed to the father of Eastern monks, Saint Pacomius of Egypt, until the day dawned. Then he would go to work, either cutting timber or cultivating his vegetable garden. If in the course of doing so he was bitten by mosquitoes or gnats, he would never kill them because they also were the work of the Creator. So that's very much similar to Francis of Assisi. And every minute of the day, the current of the Jesus prayer flowed through his being. So it flowed throughout his being. But not only was his time suffused with the Spirit of God, so also was the place he had established in the forest. which he transformed into the holy land of Jesus. One spot, for instance, he named Nazareth, for there he would go to read the gospel story of the Annunciation. There was also a cave named Bethlehem, where he celebrated the Incarnation. Another place where, sorry, another place was his Mount Tabor, and yet another the Garden of Gethsemane. While in every place there flowed the current of resurrection, for Seraphim was constantly bursting out into the singing of Eastern hymns. However, on 12th September 1804, the peace of this holy land was shattered. For on that day, as Seraphim was busy chopping wood, three men approached him. They came from the neighboring village of Kremenek and demanded money from him, thinking that the people who came to visit him must be paying him for some service. But when Seraphim said, I don't take anything from anyone, the robbers attacked him, and though the powerful Seraphim was still holding his axe, might well have defended himself. He chose not to do so, but laid his axe aside. Whereupon one of the robbers struck Seraphim on the head with the axe, and the other robbers trampled him and beat him unconscious. They then tied him up and left him as they thought for dead. Going into Seraphim's hut, they found nothing except two or three potatoes. Yet Seraphim was not dead. He regained consciousness and managed to wriggle out of his bonds, then set off slowly dragging himself towards the monastery. At this point, a monk walking, along, walking on the path came across him and ran to alert the abbot to what had happened. When Seraphim had been transported back to his cell in the monastery, no one imagined that he could possibly survive. But feeling that they nevertheless ought to do something, the monks sent for doctors to come from Arazamas. When the doctors arrived, they diagnosed the patient to be suffering from a fractured skull, broken chest and ribs, to say nothing of innumerable wounds. In their wisdom, the doctors proposed to bleed the patient. In his wisdom, Abbot Isaiah disagreed. Seraphim, in the meantime, entered into a gentle slumber. During the course of this light sleep, Seraphim again received 
a visitation from the Virgin, accompanied this time by the Apostles Peter and John. Seems kind of like a transfiguration type of experience. Once more, the Virgin assured Seraphim that he belonged in their company, and then she departed along with her attendants. When he opened his eyes, Seraphim was in a state of bliss, a state which, according to those gathered around him, lasted for four hours. After declining the help of the doctor, Seraphim went quiet, and then to everyone's astonishment, he stood up, took a few steps around his cell, and for the first time in eight days, took a little food. A portion of sauerkraut and some bread. In spite of this miraculous healing, however, it was five months before Abbot Isaiah would permit him to return to his distant desert. For Seraphim was no longer the strapping man he had been. His, his hair had now turned completely white. His whole body was bent in pain and he walked. And as he walked, he had to lean upon a stick or his axe. And as a consequence, he now came back to the monastery less frequently than before. A fact which may have contributed to a crisis that was now to shape the rest of his life. We cannot know precisely what events within the monastery led to the crisis, but we do know that it was precipitated in 1806 by the resignation of Seraphim's friend Abbot Isaiah on account of his prolonged illness. As his successor, the monks elected Seraphim, but he refused the office just as in 1796 he had similarly declined to become abbot of the monastery at Alativ and later the monastery of Krasnolobodsk. Such an office was not within his vocation, but the man who was elected Nifont the treasurer was such a diffident person from Seraphim that, sorry, different person from Seraphim that the monastery itself became a different place, a place where Seraphim was made to feel an alien. In temperament, Nifont and Seraphim were as opposite, at opposite poles, as can even be seen from the pictures we have. Of them. Nifant stands glorying, glorying in the splendor of his abbatial robes, wearing around his neck the crosses devised to show off his elevated place in the hierarchy, and holding in his right hand the crozier reflecting the same status. By contrast, Seraphim's picture shows us a bent old peasant pilgrim wearing the cross of copper given to him by his mother and in his glance there is a touch of the Eurodivi. This temperamental division between Seraphim and Nifant and its effects on the monastery were glossed over by the monks in the story of Seraphim right up until 1903 so that his canonization in that year should not cast shame upon the monastery of Serov were having persecuted Seraphim. Abbot Nifant was strict. He disliked Batuchka Seraphim, and he liked us still less, said one of the nuns from Divievo. And her words, in a nutshell, not only elucidate the story of the last 25 years of Seraphim's life, but also suggest that he should more properly be entitled not Saint Seraphim of Serov, but Saint Seraphim of Divievo. It will be remembered that Seraphim had been entreated by Mother Alexandra of Divievo and Abbot 
Pachomius to take care of her little orphans, the sisters, when she died. For some dozen years after her death, however, there is little evidence that Seraphim took much active interest in the affairs of Divievo, partly because the mutual help already established between Divievo and Sarov seems to have continued in a routine fashion and partly out of prudence. The path from Divievo to his distant hermitage, for instance, ran northwards through Sarov, straight past the monastery gatehouse, so that the wagging tongues that are so frequently the bane of religious houses would soon have been spreading malicious gossip about the hermit's relations with the sisters. Indeed, Seraphim had very deliberately chopped down a number of trees and stacked them across the path to his hermitage in order, at least for a time, to distance the sisters from any other contact with him than the spiritual. It is not difficult, of course, to understand why the Serov monks, and Abbot Nefont in particular, should have been exasperated by Seraphim. After all, Seraphim rarely wore the klobuk, the hood that was an essential sign of a monk. Instead, he was often seen bareheaded and almost indistinguishable from a peasant. Whereas Nifond was the head of a large establishment that was rapidly becoming a center of pilgrimage, for which substantial buildings were required, which could only be paid for by aggressive exploitation of the forest, such as Nifond carried out on the grand scale. The idiosyncratic lifestyle of a hermit could be constant, a constant source of disorder and an occasion of scandal that would harm the reputation of the monastery. There was an occasion, for instance, when a serf girl ran away from the nobleman's estate, clothed herself as a man, and led a vagrant's life. When she was arrested, she claimed that Seraphim had given her permission to do so. What was worse, the Governor-General of Moscow became involved because his mother-in-law owned lands nearby, and he went into a rage about the incident. Certainly he was mollified by Seraphim's patient, gentle denial of the girl's story, but the publicity was something a busy and dignified administrator such as Abbot Niffent could well do without. Among similarly undesirable events were the investigations of Seraphim's behavior that led to two bishops of Tambov, Bishop Jonas in 1821 and Bishop Arseny in 1832, to come to Serov. On each of these occasions, what they prompted the bishop's inquest had been suspicion of Seraphim's relations with the nuns of Divievo. And in both cases, not only did the bishops dispel any suspicions attacking, attaching to Seraphim, but each of them left Serov convinced of the holiness of the calumniated hermit. In any case, by the time of these visitations, Seraphim was no longer the constrained young priest who in 1794 had refused to stay on at the funeral meal of Mother Alexandra. Now he really could exercise the freedom of the children of God. Commenting on the accusations, he said with a smile, Impish one imagines, for my own part I am not in the least scandalized at scandalizing everyone. And then went on to say that the greater fault lies with those who take scandal rather than those who are said to give it. And on one occasion when Abbot Nifond stopped Seraphim in the monastery court and told him that his relations with the sisters could not go on, Seraphim bowed to the ground and answered him quietly, You are a pastor. Do not let yourself be influenced by false witnesses. Do not listen to what is told to you out of spite. Life eternal is our aim in all things, so do not block the way to it 
by pettiness. You are a pastor. Let your words be worthy of what you claim. The man who could speak so freely to his superior was all of a piece of the man who one day while working in the fields, ranking in the hay, sorry, raking in the hay, took Sister Praskovia Milyukova into his arms and to let her down from the rick she had set up. Not an embrace advisable for the average struggling monk. Obviously, however, it was no longer possible for Seraphim to continue as though nothing had changed as a result of the monastic crisis of 1807. His refusal to accept the abbacy allowed Nifant and his supporters to take charge of the monastery.